Thank you for listening to the Martinis and the Macabre podcast. This show contains graphic content and explicit language. It is intended for immature adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. sad and I was like what's wrong guy and he said I'm not allowed to practice medicine anymore I was like oh he said uh got caught sleeping with one of my patients and I said ooh ooh that's not good it's a damn shame too he'd have made a fine veterinarian <laughs> you ass <laughs> speaking oh. of which you remember remember when I went to the doctor uh huh I went to the doctor. He was like, I just, come on in, Mr. Jones. I said, okay. And he closed the door, turned around, and of course saw me naked from the waist down. And he was like, Mr. Jones, what are you doing? I said, you're going to grab my balls, right? He was like, Mr. Jones, I'm an optometrist. I was like, yeah. <laughs> it says doctor. Not those balls. And the, I, didn't the... even, I didn't even spread my legs for him to grab my balls. I, my legs were together, and I was like, dig in there. Oh my god! He meant your eyeballs, Billy. He told me to leave. He was so unprofessional. <laughs> oh wow! He grabbed one ball. He was like, "Number one or number two? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're such an ass! <laughs> oh, there's a lawsuit pending. Oh wow! Whoa! Against me? Oh. Yeah. When were you going to tell me about this? <laughs> Wherever she lightens the fuck up, the uptight doctor. <laughs> okay. Um, we're going to just jump past that and welcome you guys to Martinis and the Macabre, the podcast where we drunkenly discuss morbid murders, mysteries, and mayhem. It was an optometrist at Walmart, of all places, too. Oh, and that's out in the open and yep. people and public and... Cops. And my name's Erica... And I'm joined by my... Medically confused husband, Billy, because apparently I don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. Wow. I want to take this time to just say that um, I told Erica today that something happened this morning. This did happen. This isn't a joke. I stopped on the way to work at my local gas station, and I got a fountain pop. I got Mountain Dew, and they were out of my blueberry muffins, because blueberry muffins and Mountain Dew is the best thing in the world. But I had to settle with a blueberry and cream cheese bear claw. I got halfway through the bear claw. And I, you know, you're halfway through. You just go and take the wrapper all the way off. And that bottom part was, I'm saying like the bottom third, was just covered in hair and mold. So gross. So um, I'm going to try to lean away and burp. But I've been kind of queasy all day. You'll never look at those the same way. No. You know how long it took me? To start eating Reese Cups again, which you know are one of my favorites. After finding a maggot on one when I opened it when I was a child. That's... Yeah. All right. So, um, third time's a charm. Yep. This is the episode that evidently the bitch doesn't want it to be. We are covering Teresa Cross Noor, who we have twice before recorded and both times a year apart. The file has been corrupted or lost. We had recorded this episode last week. I got two-thirds of the way through editing it, and the fucking file just poof, gone. So, I'm going to record this, export it, and save it three fucking times so we don't lose this shit. And if it still goes away, then this bitch is the devil herself. I have a theory concerning that, and I'll get to it. All right. So. I think I know why it's been doing this. This is... A really bad one. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our last one. A little more lighthearted, even though there was still death. The London Beer Flood and the Boston Molasses Flood. R.I.P. Beer and Liquor. Cut me deep. Yeah. I would go and pour some beer out, but that's kind of mocking no. the flood. Yeah, don't, don't do that. Save it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 
gonna put so, you in my belly. So be prepared. This one is is a rough one because Teresa Cross Nor, if you don't know who she is, she imprisoned, tortured, and killed two of her three daughters by enlisting the help of her sons in the 1980s in California. She is a real piece of shit, dog shit, godless fucking heel. Yep, just what he said. And uh, to get the full gist of Teresa's fucking craziness, we're going to kind of do what we did with Catherine Knight and go back a little bit. We're going to go back to the very beginning when Teresa Jimmy Francine Cross was born in Sacramento, California on March 14th of 1946. You already know something's wrong because she has too many names. That's it. Yep. (laughs) Details on her upbringing are sparse as Teresa has told numerous different versions of her life to different people. We do know that her father, Jim, was a cheesemaker and not the farting kind. That's my job. (laughs) at a local dairy and managed to save up enough money to buy a home for his wife and two daughters in Rio Linda, California. But in the 1950s, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's and was forced to quit his job. And those of you who may not know Parkinson's... It's Marty McFly syndrome. Yeah, that's what Michael J. Fox has. It's a neurological disorder. You start having tremors all over your body. You can't move very well. It's, it's a really horrible disease to have. So, because of this, he had to quit his job, and this left Teresa's mother, Swanee, responsible to keep the family financially afloat. Jim developed depression, and it was reported that he took his anger and frustrations out on the family. As a result, Teresa was extremely close with her mother, and she was devastated when Swanee died suddenly from congestive heart failure in 1961 in Teresa's arms. So, I mean, she was, what, 15 at that time? And her mom dies in her arms, so I'm sure that was a pretty bad time. Jim wasn't able to keep the home with Swanee gone, and he had to sell it. Do you you think there was a fucking toilet outside? Hmm? A water closet? A water closet? (laughs) This isn't 10 Rillington Place. Still, though. Go check those episodes out if you want to know more about the murders of 10 Rillington Place. At just 18 years of age, Teresa met a man named Clifford Clyde Sanders, who was five years her senior. Oh, God. Oh, sorry, guys. It's all that mold. Oh, God. (laughs) So, Teresa and Clifford dated for only a few months before being married on September 29th of 1962. Soon after, she became pregnant and dropped out of school. Her first child, Howard, was born on July 16th of 1963. The marriage was rocky, as you probably could have guessed, and the couple often fought over Clifford's alleged infidelity. On June 22nd of 1964, Teresa reported Clifford for allegedly punching her during one of their arguments, but then she refused to press charges. Just a couple of weeks later, on July 6th, Teresa showed up at the sheriff's office with baby Howard on her hip, to report that she had shot Clifford in the arm. Teresa claimed her husband had been beating her with the butt end of a 30-30 caliber rifle, and she somehow managed to wrestle it away from him. That's, I don't see how. That's, yeah. Um, I, he was probably, if that was the case, he was probably pushing her with it. Like you, <laughs> you strike somebody with a the rifle, they go down pretty hard, pretty quick. Oh, yeah. She said the, the gun just went off. She shot him in the arm. Teresa and two sheriff's deputies returned quickly to the scene, only to find Clifford face down on the floor, dead. The slug had traveled through his wrist, but it also went directly into his heart. So he was just, boom, dead instantly. Teresa was booked and taken to Sacramento County Jail. And Howard, just shy of his first birthday, was taken by one of Teresa's relatives to care for. And Teresa was already pregnant with their second child. Teresa admitted to the district attorney after her arrest that Clifford had not actually beaten her that morning, but claimed he had been abusive throughout the marriage, you know, even though she wouldn't press charges. The morning she shot him... He was actually very sweet. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say sweet, but he was not beating her. He was actually packing to leave Teresa. She went and grabbed the gun, cocked it, and fired. Teresa recalled, quote, 
I remember holding the gun and having my finger on the trigger, but then everything went blank. Of course it did. She entered a plea of innocent by reason of self-defense on August 4th of 1964, and her trial began in September. The trial itself lasted 12 days, and she was somehow found not guilty on September 22nd. I don't know how a man packing to leave and you grabbing the gun and shooting him is like self-defense. I'm going to use the whole blackout or, technique. If I, if I shoot somebody, I'll be like, I held the gun and pointed it at him. I said, back off, you're going to die. But then everything just went black. Not guilty? Really? Yeah. <laughs> the last thing she said to him was, over your dead body. Uh, this is uh, where somewhere in our stupid country, a jury was stupid. <laughs> That's all there is to it. But uh, a few days after the verdict, she actually went to the courthouse to reclaim the rifle she had used to shoot and kill her husband with. You can do that. You can, but would you wanna? It's in bad taste, but... She returned to her maiden name of Cross and regained custody of Howard. In March of 1965, her second child, Sheila, was born. So, now here she is, a very young mother... With two very young children. You're a very young mother. No, I'm not. We're not. We're not young. <laughs> We're not spring chickens, hun. Come on now. And she's shot and killed her husband. And she's alone with these two kids. So what better to do than start drinking heavily? Which is exactly what she did following Sheila's birth. I'm not drunk. I'm just having fun. She had a brief relationship with an army veteran who ended up leaving her. Because she would routinely leave the young kids with him while she would go out and drink. And have an affair with his best friend. I bet he got so tired of watching the kids. That's probably what it was. Yeah, they're they're not mm-hmm. even his kids. And she's like, here you go. I'm going out. She then started a relationship with Marine Robert Knorr. She became pregnant and the two married on July 9th of 1966. Her third child, Susan was born just two months later on September 27th of 1966. So she was already well into her pregnancy when they got hitched. She's and, always pregnant. Yeah. Like, well, it doesn't matter, like, when you ask anybody in the town, like, do you know where Teresa is? Teresa. Pregnant chick. Oh, yeah, her. <laughs> She's been pregnant since I met her, and I've known her for five years. Yeah. And then she popped out two more. William, who was born in September of 1967. <laughs> You know, there has to be that one person in town who's a dumbass, and he's like, is she ever going to have that baby? You know, they're like, yeah, she's had like 17 so far. Yeah. Yeah, so she had William in September of 1967, and then Robert in December of 1968. I mean, she was wasting no time between these kids. She's a fertile myrtle. So by age 22, Teresa was a mother of five young children. What age? 22. God damn on her second marriage, and had killed her first husband. Wow. She's busy. (laughs) Robert became abusive to Teresa and the children, and the two were separated when Teresa's sixth child was born in August of 1970. She was named Teresa as well, and they called her Terry for short, which is kind of unusual. You don't usually hear of women naming their daughters after themselves. They're so close in age, they're siblings and their peers. (laughs) By the end of the next month, Teresa and Robert's divorce was final. But then Teresa married again shortly thereafter. But that marriage only lasted a year before ending in divorce. Because ain't nobody got time for six kids under the age of seven. That's really true. (laughs) But then Teresa moved the family to a large house in Orangevale, West Sacramento, in 1973. And Teresa met Chester Chet Harris, a wealthy newspaper executive... And they started a relationship and were married in August of 1976. Chet's fucking crazy. Because with most people, men or women, it's like, I really like you. I love you. I love where this is going. And like, well, there's something you gotta know about me. And then he's like, oh, fuck. She's got the herp. <laughs> the like, herpy got a clap. He probably said to you, do you have herpes? No, no, no. I have seven kids. Can't you just have herpes? God. <laughs> it could have been man or woman. Wouldn't matter. They'd be like, all right, I gotta go. Fuck this. This is nuts. 
uh, she had six kids. Oh. Under the Never age. mind. Six kids under the age of seven. So, uh, at some point, Teresa discovered that Chet, which just sounds like a wealthy newspaper executive, Chet. Sounds like one of those guys that's like, you know, my dad's got a yacht. <laughs> this is my daughter, Dakota. But uh, she discovered that Chet had a penchant for taking nude photos of women and that he dabbled in the occult. She also noticed that her daughter Susan became close with Chet and their time together made Teresa jealous. And not like because she kind of wondered if they were doing something. She was just jealous because he was spending more time with her daughter than her. She began to obsessively read the Bible and put on a lot of weight which reportedly would also make her jealous of her older daughter's youthful appearances in the years to come. This marriage only lasted a whopping three months. They were divorced by November of 1976. And then this is when Teresa gets some real crazy on her face. Yeah, she's been fine up until now. (laughs) Yeah, if you didn't think it was bad enough, here it goes. After her failed marriage with weirdo Chet, Teresa began to drink much more heavily and became extremely physically abusive and neglectful of her children. And then she went and bought a bear claw that that was hairy. (laughs) (sighs) No. It had a sour taste, too. I should have... I imagine it did, hon. She became reclusive and quick-tempered, refusing to let the children have any visitors in the house and disconnecting the home phone. Around this time, six-year-old Terry told her mother that she was being molested, basically fucking raped and sodomized, by her older brother Howard, who was then 13, 13 years old, doing this to his six-year-old sister. Ugh. Now, instead of, like, going to the police, when Teresa heard this, she beat Howard severely, which I would understand, and broke a chair over his back. But it wasn't reported to the police. And it kind of makes you wonder if in some way Chet played any part in this dysfunction. If he, like, influenced How could he? Howard. He was only there for, what, 90 days? <laughs> it's, it's still, I mean, what would possess a 13-year-old brother to do that to his sister? That's something deep down and probably genetic. I'm not blaming my boy Chet for that. Fuck, you can't even get insurance at your job long enough that they had their fucking relationship. True. The family moved it around... It takes longer for weed to move out of your system <laughs> to have that marriage. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. The family moved around this time to a small two-bedroom apartment for six kids, and the abuse continued to escalate. Neighbors reported that the apartment smelled of urine and was filthy. They, I believe it. <laughs> I believe it, too. They noticed the children never came outside to play, but always seemed fearful and nervous when they were occasionally seen coming and going. One of the first horrific incidents that occurred was spurred from one of Terry's best friend's mothers offering Teresa some of her own daughter's old clothes as a gift. Now, remember Terry being the youngest one. She was six or seven at this time. Teresa thought Terry was telling people that the family was poor and couldn't afford clothes. When actually, the neighbor was just trying to be nice. Like, hey, can you use these? See, it doesn't pay to be nice. (laughs) Nice guys do finish last. Yeah. And uh, this is where it gets pretty bad. Teresa, because she was angry at Terry, thinking she'd gone and told people that they were poor, she stripped a little Terry naked, put a rope around her neck, and threw the other end over a door. She then had her sons hold Terry up stationary against the door using the rope around her neck, while Teresa then beat Terry with a weeping willow limb until she almost blacked out. That's fucked up. Yeah, that's pretty dark. Teresa began drinking more and would leave Howard in charge of the other children often, once for four days. This 
raping fuck of a brother. Let's leave him in charge. So during this four-day vacation or whatever she had, the explanation she gave her son was quite delusional. Howard recalled, quote, She told me she had found some pennies and she threw these pennies away and that, you know, these pennies showed back up at the motel where she was staying and no matter what she did, these pennies kept showing back up, you know. End quote. Whatever, dude. Whatever in the fuck that has to do with her being gone for four days. Why? (laughs) She continued to abuse the children when she was home and had a two-by-four labeled Board of Education. Which is kind of clever. She would enlist Howard to carry out beatings as well once he was big enough. During the years of abuse, Teresa tortured the children in many ways, though. She would burn them with cigarettes, throw knives at them, beat them, and even force feed or starve them. To perform beatings, she would have some of the children hold down the child who was to be beaten. Most of the abuse was directed to the two oldest daughters, Sheila and Susan. In an interview years later, the youngest daughter, Terry, stated that Teresa resented their youth and good looks, while she herself gained weight and began to show signs of aging. Teresa also believed that her last husband, Chet, had turned Susan into a witch, causing Susan to receive the brunt of the abuse. Because, you know, Susan cast a spell on Teresa that caused her to gain weight. I believe it. (laughs) Because she believed Susan to be a witch, Teresa would take her trim nails and loose hairs from her hairbrush and flush them down the toilet so that Susan could not use them in her supposed witchcraft rituals. Sounds legit. (laughs) I'm going to hide my clipped fingernails and loose hair so my daughter won't cast spells on me. (laughs) She's clipping her nails and she's doing that thing where she's pointing at her eyes and pointing at her. (laughs) Fucking watching you. Watching you. Well, Susan ran away from home after one intense beating. Police picked her up and she was placed in a fucking psychiatric hospital. She told the staff about the abuse in the home, but they put her in a psychiatric hospital. Of course, Teresa denied the claims and said Susan had mental issues. But Teresa was never even investigated and Susan was then released back into her evil mother's custody. That's fucked up. I guess it was just a different time. Well... After this little issue, her mother was very pissed. She was punished with severe beatings from Teresa, who also forced the other children to beat Susan as well. In the weeks after, Susan was handcuffed to either the bed or the kitchen table leg, and the other children were made to stand guard so that Susan couldn't leave. Shortly thereafter, Teresa began pulling the children out of school one by one, and no one investigated this. Children just, you know, disappearing. You'll have that. Well, guess they just moved along. Yeah, Erica, read a book. I did read a book for this, just so you know. Oh, okay. So, your point's invalid. Teresa made the older children get jobs and or sell drugs, sell drugs, to pay for the rent and utilities. Gotta make that money, man. So, fuckface Howard... Ended up moving out of the house and just kind of left the younger five children to fend for themselves, I guess. Because he was like, fuck you guys, I'm out of here. And now we come to the first murder. Teresa continued to believe that Susan was a witch. Me too. I mean, obviously, because she spent time with Chet, who dabbled in the occult, Susan must be a witch. It's coming together. It really is. (laughs) In June of 1983... Despite Susan's denials, Teresa picked up a 22 Derringer pistol, pointed it at Susan's chest, and pulled the trigger. She's like, you ain't hexing me. <laughs> the bullet entered just under her left breast and lodged in her back. Susan fell back through the bathroom doorway and into the bathtub. Teresa refused to let Susan get medical help, and thinking Susan would die, she just left her bleeding in the tub. The other children instinctively... That's how sick this family is. They instinctively began cleaning up the blood from the floor where Susan had been shot. When Teresa realized a few days later that Susan was not dying, she did a 180 and began to nurse her back to health with antibiotics and ibuprofen and applying and changing bandages on her wound, all while Susan was still in the tub. Well, if you don't kill her, you know what you got? 
You got a pissed off witch is what you got. True. You better be nice now. Yeah. You missed your chance. You missed your shot, literally. <laughs> yeah. You guys thought she was dying from that bullet? <clears throat> uh-uh. No. Mm. Not this witch. No. <laughs> About a month after Susan's wound had pretty much healed and things went back to normal. <laughs> and everything just kind of proceeded on as it was. The abuse... Forcing the kids to have jobs, sell drugs, all that jazz. About a year later, during the early part of July in 1984, Susan and Teresa got into an argument and Teresa stabbed Susan with a pair of scissors in her back. Once again, medical treatment was not allowed. Susan pleaded with her mother to just let her move out, stating she would just fucking move away to Alaska if she would just let her go. Surprisingly... Teresa agreed to Susan's request, but with one condition. That the bullet lodged in her back had to be removed so that there would be no evidence of the shooting that could link Teresa to the crime. Susan, figuring this was her only out, reluctantly agreed. So Susan was given Melarol capsules, which is an antipsychotic medication used to treat schizophrenia, and it kind of makes you wonder where they obtained this medication. Mm-hmm. Where'd you happen across that I wonder that if shit? somebody was already being treated for schizophrenia. And she was also given liquor to render her unconscious. Now, there's some discrepancy in the research as to who actually performed the quote-unquote surgery. But it was either Teresa that removed it herself, or she ordered her son, which was 15-year-old Robert, to take it out with an X-Acto knife as Susan laid face down on the kitchen floor. Now, it took about two hours for the bullet to be removed, as it was deeper than they expected. But at the so end of they, the day, he could be like, I know how to tell you got a bullet. But, I mean, can you imagine? They had to dig in her fucking back for two hours Ugh. to get this bullet. That had to be a mess. Of course, Susan, with the Melorel and liquor in her, she was unconscious until the next day. But it was obvious that she was not so well. She was in intense pain, and over the next few days, she started to become delirious, and her skin became jaundiced, which is when it yellows because you have some type of liver damage going on. She could no longer control her bowel and bladder, and so they took undersized diapers and put them, like, under her and on her to collect her urine and specimens. She was riddled with infection by this point, and she had become septic, which... As you may recall from, I think, our very first episode, what sepsis is, massive infection, comes on quick, and it's very deadly if you don't treat it. Teresa attempted to treat Susan with antibiotics and ibuprofen once again, but this time it just was not cutting it. But this isn't what killed her either. She's tough. (laughs) Another twist. Teresa still insisted that Susan was a witch, and the only way to kill a witch is to... Burner. Burner! Now, this is why she's a witch. She's been shot. She's been stabbed. She's been beaten. She's so far lived through a fucking... Starved, force-fed. Yeah, starved, force-fed, lived through a horrible fucking infection. And we cannot seem to get this episode recorded and done. She's a witch. <laughs> so that's why we've lost our that's files. That's why. Yep. If it was it's any because other, Susan's a witch. If it was any other topic, we'd be done. But nope. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe her mom was the witch. Or a demon. Something. Or Chet knows we're doing this and is hexing us. <laughs> we have tried for a year to record this episode. Don't even know. So, the only way to kill a witch is to burn them. So, Teresa packed all of Susan's belongings in trash bags on July 16th of 1984. She bound Susan's arms and legs with duct tape and placed a strip of it over her mouth. I'm sure at this point she probably couldn't even talk. If she was making any sound, it was incoherent mumblings. But she put a piece of tape over her mouth anyway. Teresa then ordered her sons Robert and William to put Susan in the car, and they drove to Squaw Valley in Placer County, California, in the middle of the night. The boys placed Susan on top of her bagged belongings on the side of the road, doused her in gasoline, and set her on fire. She was still alive, burning, when they drove away. Wow. Man. 
That's fucked up. The next morning, motorists spotted what they thought was a brush fire off of Highway 89. Well, kind of was. Uh, not the kind of brush you would expect. Yeah. And a trucker attempted to put it out with an extinguisher he had in the cab of his truck. When that didn't work, he doused the flames with water, finally putting it out. And only then did the motorist realize that it wasn't a brush fire. They saw a body with duct tape still visible on the wrists and mouth of the deceased. Investigators determined that the fire had been set intentionally, evidenced by traces of flammable liquids found on the scene. And the fact that they were, she was tied up. Numerous items were found near the body, including perfume, necklaces, and bracelets, clothing, and diapers. All believed to have been in plastic trash bags that had burned. But none of the items really helped to identify the body. And there was no match on the dental records. And because of the diapers, the investigators thought she might have been a mother of a small child. Prints were found on the duct tape, but they didn't match anyone in the system. And with nothing to really go on, they listed her as a Jane Doe, number 4873-84. The autopsy showed burns to 90% of the body and that she had died after being bound, gagged, and set on fire. They did find a large ovarian mass, which indicated that she had been severely beaten in the abdomen, which we knew that. Yeah. A wound was noted to the back, but the damage from the fire prevented the medical examiner from deciding an actual cause for the injury, which we all know was them digging out the bullet. So, now we get to the second murder. Because, you know, killing one daughter isn't enough. No, go for gusto. With Susan gone, the majority of the abuse was then aimed against Sheila, as she was the next oldest daughter. Teresa forced Sheila into prostitution. You know, it's one thing forcing your kids to go and get a job. It's another thing to force them to go sell drugs. But it's a whole new realm of things when you force your kids into prostitution. She forced Sheila into prostitution in May of 1985 to support the family. What, what did Terry say in Reno 911? Hey, man, hand job's still a job. <laughs> Not when it's your fucking kid. No, no, but fucking, you want these lights on? <sighs> no, <laughs> that is awful. So, once Teresa was content with the amount of money Sheila was bringing in, she allowed Sheila to come and go as she pleased. But Sheila never went for help or to report the abuses and murder that had taken place. I think by this point, I mean, she was so young when all this started that it was just kind of ingrained in her that this was normal. Yeah, like, it, it's been like that for so long to her. This is what, like, everyday life is. Mm -hmm. type of thing. Which is sad. It's horrible. Sheila was hit by a motorist while riding her bike near a mortuary one night. Teresa took this as a sign and said Sheila had died then. And a demon took over her body. So her first daughter was a witch, the second one's a demon. Right? She's got an evil pussy that just creates monsters. Evidently, her pussy is the portal to fucking hell. Direct the, line. The Amityville twat. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so, uh, because she turned into a demon, Sheila was beaten when she returned home from the hospital. Isn't there a horror movie called The Hole? I don't know. The came out of the 80s about the hole in the dude's backyard. No, that's The Gate. The Gate. Ah, shit. That would have worked so well. I used to love that movie. Me too. Kid. It was so great. <laughs> I thought the little demon things were kind of cute. Until it was big. That's and then it wasn't so cute. That's why you're you. Yeah. No, but remember he fell forward. He turned into a bunch of little ones and they ran away. Uh -huh. they, kind of, they scampered. That was so cool. They scampered away. Scampered. They were claymation, I think. Anyway, Demon Sheila after getting released from the hospital, after getting hit by a fucking car, was beaten when she got home. She was force-fed macaroni and cheese. Good day. Which, that sounds like heaven to me. <laughs> I love my mac and cheese. Oh, well, no, please don't put another spoonful in my mouth. <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure um, Sheila wasn't feeling it. I don't <laughs> think demons like mac and cheese. <laughs> it was crazy. It was on the way home, like if she took a cab... She's in like a half of her half of a body cast, or like she's got that brace where there's like drill bits in her head that are holding her head in place. <laughs> the you know? And that poor that poor cabbie's listening to her, like she's like, oh, I'm gonna get my fucking ass kicked when I get home. And he's like, Surely 
they're just gonna love on you and they miss you and they're worried about you. Like, no, no, I'm taking no. a fucking cab home. What do you think? No, they're, they're, she's gonna beat the brakes off me. She's probably got macaroni cooking. I know it. I know it. Macaroni's good. I'm lactose intolerant. Oh, macaroni and hot dog water. Hot dog soup. Hot dog soup and macaroni. So, uh, yeah, she was force-fed the macaroni, which I'm sure she did not find nearly as pleasant as I would, uh, which Teresa had done with Susan in the past, and fed her so forcefully that she managed to chip one of Sheila's teeth. She chipped the demon's tooth. You gotta be really enthusiastic about feeding somebody some hamburger helper without the hamburger. (laughs) That's what I'm gonna call it now to make it classy. Hamburger helper without the hamburger. Hamburger helper. I removed the hamburger. Hamburger omitted. Hamburger helper sands the hamburger. (laughs) So another wacky delusion overcame Teresa a few weeks later. Just crazy. She accused Sheila of being pregnant and said that she contracted an STD, which Teresa then caught from her via the toilet seat. Which I think is impossible. So she's a pregnant demon with an STD who passed the STD on to her mom via the toilet seat. You know, at this point, if I was her, I'd just be like, yeah, sure. Yeah, why not? Yeah. All right. What's next? More fucking macaroni, Mom? What, 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 what possibly could you do? Don't answer that question. Well, <laughs> Sheila denied the accusations, and Teresa proceeded to beat her, hogtie her, and then threw her in a cramped hot closet that had poor ventilation. These kids need to learn judo or some shit. She forbade the other children to give Sheila water or food. Sheila then confessed to the allegations in an attempt to end the torture, but Teresa thought she was lying. So, she beat her because she denied it and thought she was lying then, and now she's locking her in her closet and saying, no, I don't believe you, you're lying, when she's admitting to it. Reminds me of Reservoir Dogs. Can't fucking win. Remember Reservoir Dogs with Nice Guy Eddie? He's like, if you beat this prick long enough, he's going to tell you to start the Chicago fire, and that doesn't necessarily make it fucking so. True. Very True. So, because Teresa didn't believe her, because, you know, she was lying then, but she's lying now, too, she refused to let her out of the tiny, sweltering closet. The youngest daughter, Terry, was able to sneak her sister a beer while Teresa was out of the house at one point. I don't know why she didn't, you know, pour her a glass of water. I would think that they would have water access. Because, you know, the kids are prostituting themselves to pay the bills. I'd be so pissed if I was a prostitute to pay the bills, and I'm like, there's no water? Really? There's no water? No water. I've had pink eye for a month. You're going to tell me there's no fucking water? The only thing I can think of is that maybe Terry wasn't tall enough to get into the cabinet. That's what I'm thinking. She didn't think to put a chair up to the cabinet to get a glass. I don't know. She got her a beer. Here, when Mama drinks it, she gets happy. I mean, Maybe this will make you happy. I mean, at least she was brave enough to sneak her sister a beer. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty sad. So, that was the only drink she had to give her. That's what she gave her. And that's the only thing that Sheila had while in this closet. Sheila would yell out and make noise, trying to get out of her bindings. So, Teresa stuck towels along the bottom of the door to stifle the sound, which then left Sheila with absolutely no ventilation. Three days later, on June 21st, 1985, all of the sounds stopped. And Sheila was dead. Because, you know, you only go about three days without anything to drink. Yep. Especially in a really fucking hot closet in California. Yep. Sheila's body laid in that closet in a fetal position for three more days before anyone would even open the door. And that was only because the body was decomposing and the apartment started to stink. The two boys were once again ordered to remove the body which I can only imagine the smell that wafted out of that closet when they opened the door. Holy shit, I don't know how their neighbors couldn't have reported this. You know, those boys grew up to be some of the best body disposal experts for the mafia. <laughs> those brothers were the people you called to clean up the place. You know? I mean, these are fucking teenagers yeah. being made to remove their three-day dead sister, who you know by this point has got to be bloated. Yeah. Sorry for being so graphic, but I mean, she's got to be glo- bloated and... Pretty stinky. And these are, they're kids. Kids having to remove their sister's body. They placed her in a large cardboard box and loaded her into the car. 
Teresa then drove out into the country as she'd done before, but she went to a different place to put Sheila's body. The body in the box was dumped near an airport in Truckee, California. That's where bodies go to get dropped. <laughs> it sounds like a place where bodies get dropped. Any place <laughs> called Truckee. Truckee. That's like the land of misfit toys. Like, that's where bodies go. <laughs> that's where you put them. That's, that's where your dead children go. In hmm. cardboard boxes, which remind me of coffins. And if you ever are sad about death, this would cheer you up. If people are in the cemetery and they're in coffins and they're in an earthquake, all the coffins become maracas. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so no matter how scared you are during an earthquake, you'd be like, well, I bet the fucking cemetery is popping right now. <coughs> like fucking Mexican jumping beans. <laughs> Next time there's an earthquake, I'm just going to be sitting here like, La Cucaracha, La Cucaracha. <laughs> Oh, that's definitely one way to look at it. Ooh. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. We like to have fun. The box was spotted just hours later on the edge of a lake in Nevada County, California. Nearby Truckee. By a fisherman. It was just 15 miles from where the Jane Doe had been dumped and set on fire. The body was in a large box that had originally been intended for popcorn cups. The box also contained plastic bags, sheets, and blankets wrapped around the body. A cloth ligature could be seen around the neck and wrists of the body. The autopsy could not reveal the exact cause of death, but it was either starvation or suffocation. Heart failure. <laughs> Always heart failure. Always heart failure. They also could not identify this body, and Sheila became a Jane Doe as well. Teresa, concerned with the smell and evidence in the apartment, decided to move the family out. Good idea. She packed them up on September 29th of 1986 and ordered Terry, the youngest child, to set it on fire. An apartment. It wasn't bad enough <clears throat> that you had your young children remove another young child's dead body out of a closet, but now you're going to order your youngest one to commit arson. Why not? Terry used three bottles of lighter fluid to start the fire, and she ran. But the neighbors were able to report the fire before it did too much damage. During the later investigation, police were able to remove the subfloor from the closet to test it for evidence, as the fire had not affected the closet. The one place you probably would want it to really affect. Yeah, but, you know, Terry was young. She didn't know how you're supposed to cover up the evidence. I don't either. I'm not young, but... I wouldn't think. I don't, I've never had to do it, so I, I don't know. <laughs> Remember that one time in Truckee? Yep. By this time, most of the children were adults and decided to sever their ties with Teresa, but 19-year-old Robert stayed with his mom. Terry, who was only 16, used her sister Sheila's ID to pass as an adult, and she left as well. Teresa and Robert moved to Las Vegas, but then they tried to keep a low profile. You know, I bet you can. In a densely populated place, it's probably easy to disappear. Mm -hmm. In our town, probably not so much, you know. And it depends on what you're trying to keep low for. You know, like, you know, if you sew a button on once, it doesn't make you a tailor. You cook yourself a meal once, it doesn't make you a chef. But fuck one horse, then the rest of your days... Kill two children. You're a horse fucker. <laughs> and no matter where you go, you, 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 you're going to stick out. So it's pretty hard to keep a low profile. That's all I'm saying. Horse fucker, huh? That's what came to mind? Horse fucker. Maracas. <laughs> so, they tried to keep their low profiles, but that was until Robert fatally shot a bartender during an attempted robbery in November of 1991. That's that not, is not keeping a low profile. That's not low profile at all. No. That's he, high profile. He, he wasn't the wisest. She had taught her children all about all these crimes you know, drug selling and arson and murder. She didn't teach him about a, a, a robbery of a bar. She probably, he probably shot, shot the dude in front of everybody. He picked up the body and went to just take it to a closet because that's all he knows. <laughs> Get some towels, roll them up. Like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> 
he ended up sentenced to 16 years in prison. Shortly after his arrest, a Teresa moved to Salt Lake City. Now, Terry, the youngest, attempted to report the murders of her sisters once she was out on her own to both the Utah police and a therapist she visited. They thought she was making it all up and did not initiate any type of investigation. This is the second time from a second family member that crimes were being reported and absolutely fuck nothing was done about it. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah, all you gotta do is like, look at her arrest record. She killed her husband. Look at the record. Yeah. You know, all you gotta do is you'd be like, okay, go investigate it. If I'm lying, arrest me. This is the American version crime. of Catherine Knight where everything just fucking fell through the cracks. Yep. Everything. Nobody believed her. She reported it. You would think the therapist would have taken it to heart. Yeah. A therapist and the police. I, I'm mm, mm, getting mad. Terry later contacted the Placer County Detectives, which is the county where Susan's body was found, on October 28th of 1993. And they finally started an investigation. Thank you, Placer County Detectives, for fucking doing your jobs. They were able to link the two Jane Doe's to Terry's descriptions of the murders. Finally, William was arrested on November 4th, 1993 in connection with the murders. He had been living and working in Woodland, California. Robert was charged while already in a Nevada prison, serving his time for the murdered bartender. Teresa had been working and living in an elderly woman's house in Salt Lake City, Utah, as her live-in caretaker. Completely different role than she had at home. The family of the elderly woman thought Teresa was great. Except for that whole nail clippings and hair down the toilet. We never understood why she did that. (laughs) No, they thought she was just the best thing ever. She never showed them any signs of her behavior from the past. I mean, they even invited her to gatherings and gave her Christmas gifts. They thought she was the bee's knees. They were quite shocked when police surrounded the house of their mother on November 10th of 1993 and took Teresa into custody. You know... In my head, I could picture this old lady wheeling up to the window and seeing that going, they know. <laughs> but she like started to back up. And you can see Teresa packing her shit and running. You're like, oh. She's like, like, it's her, it's her. <laughs> like, the old lady did something awful uh-huh. that we'll never know about. <laughs> they found me. I don't know how, but they found me. Run for it, Marty. Yeah, and you can actually, there are pictures in, in the book that I read. Um, I believe it's, Like I said, we tried to record this a year ago, so it's been a while since I read the book, but I believe whatever mommy says or something along those lines. But in the book, there's actually family pictures that she is in from when, like, they had gatherings and Christmas get-togethers and stuff. I mean, they considered her, like, a part of the family. And here the police are just charging in, taking her into custody for fucking murder of her children. Meanwhile, Gertrude's like... Flush the coke! Flush the coke! (laughs) Oh, you're here for her? Oh, what seems to be the problem, officer? (laughs) The secret goes with me to my grave! There are those big guns. (laughs) Well, Teresa ended up being charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and two special circumstances. The charges were multiple murder and murder by torture. And one count of being a total grade-A jerk. (laughs) she initially pled not guilty until she learned that her son robert was gonna flip on her he was gonna testify against her for a reduced sentence she then pleaded guilty because she knew she was fucking going down to avoid the death penalty on october 7th of 1995 she was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences she remains incarcerated at the california institution for women in corona california and will not be eligible for parole until 2027. Now, that's a good nine years away. She was born in 46, so that makes her what? Yes. 50, 60... She's in her 70s now. So she's pushing it. Don't think she's going to make it out. William was sentenced to probation and ordered to undergo therapy. Robert was only charged with accessory after the fact in return for his testimony. His sentence was three years to be conserved concurrently with a 16-year sentence. 
Terry Knorr married twice and ended up moving to Sandy, Utah with her second husband. She worked in a grocery store in the same neighborhood where her mother was living and working and at the same time. Neither of them knew how close in proximity they were to one another, but yet never had contact. Sadly, Terry passed away on December 8th of 2011. Uh, I do believe it was some type of, you know, natural death, um, but I could not find an actual cause of death. But Terry, the hero in all of this, at least she got the story out before she passed away. And thank you to her for at least getting some type of justice for her sisters. And thank you to the people who finally fucking investigated. Seriously, Placer County, mad props. Is that still a thing? Mad props? It is now. Yep. Mad props. Fuck yeah. You guys are ballers, yo. For show. And uh, that wraps up the horribly twisted case of Teresa Crossnor. Evilest fucking bitch around. Although maybe not quite as gruesome as Catherine Knight's murder. Probably twice as bad. They're your fucking kids. Yeah. You beat them and tortured them and fucking killed them. And pimped them out. So, rotten hell, you awful demon bitch. And if this episode never comes out, you guys will be none the wiser. But if it does, know that she's been trying to get us to keep from airing this for a fucking year. We won't stop. This is two days before the episode is due to come out. This is my last ditch effort. If this doesn't work, we're not ever doing it again. Yeah, this is it. We're fucking burning the papers that I have printed out on this. The outline is gone. Because it has to be a fucking witch, right? Right? That's what I've been saying. Oh, okay. He wasn't token on a joint, I promise. (coughs) (laughs) That totally sounded like that. Fucking real, man. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for any... You know, sharing that you do, word of mouth, telling people about the show. We really appreciate it if you could get on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you can. Leave us a rating and a review. That really means so much to us. You know, helps bring us to a bigger audience. Um, You know, spreading the word. That's how people join in. Somebody says, hey, check this out. I think it's funny. And maybe you'll find some other weirdos out there that like us too. So, do that. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Martinis and the Macabre. And Twitter at martinis underscore macabre. Come to our website, martinisinthemacabre.com. Fully playable episode catalog. There's also a fully playable track listing by all the songs from Phaser765 that we've used on all the episodes. And he has an album out. Yes, he just released a new album. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. This is like my fourth day of 12-hour shifts in a row, and I'm just like a zombie. But I am going to listen to it and maybe even include one of those songs at the end of this episode. I don't know if it'll be one of those, but we'll find out. You'll find out with me. Yay! Yay! You can also um, find his link to his Patreon on our website. You can read about him, read about us. You can see some of his artwork. We've got, you know, all the episodes from Season 1 and Season 2 that are up. We've got some really good ideas for Patreon. We are still working on that. I know it's taking forever, guys. I'm sorry. But Billy came up with a really good one. So we're going to be working on that. Working that angle. Hopefully we'll have that out soon. Feel free to send us any questions, comments, topic suggestions, anything you want to martinisinthemacabre at gmail.com. We also have a contact page on the website that you can go to if you want to contact us through there. Send us a message on Facebook. Post on the Facebook page. Join the Facebook fan page. Friends who like Martinis in the Macabre. Usually when we share on one, we share on the other one. So hopefully nothing gets missed. Join both. Feel free to post whatever you want. Weird, funny, scary, horrible, whatever you like. We find it all interesting. We're easy. We're, I wouldn't say easy, but easy going. I invited an optometrist to fill my balls. Oh, you are easy. You're a slut. I'm going to slut shame you. Don't slut shame me. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to add? Of course, how can I forget? Thank Phaser765 for the music and artwork, because he's awesome. I got nothing. Let me know where you live, and next time I'm in town, I'll come to your house and high-five you. He'll ask you to feel his ball. No, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) Unless you ain't doing nothing. (laughs) 
<laughs> Alright guys, I think that's all we have for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Maybe not the topic. You know what happened, but the episode itself, how we covered it. That would be awesome if you did. Because that's, we aims to please. So until next time, and bye. Also, thank you for uh, over 1,000 downloads. We're over 40,000. Oh, so guys, thank you for over 4,000 downloads. Oh my God, what can make it to over 5,000? We're at 40,000. Oh! 43, actually. Oh, oh, 43! Down! There we go! You got it. Yeah. There we go! Alright, that was Nuggets input. 43,000. Just so you guys know, he just came out of his room. He wasn't sitting next to us this entire time or anything. True. We were not talking about child murders in front of our seven-year-old. But yes, you can tell he's excited for our 1,000 downloads. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for that. We're at 40... We should be at 43,000. Thank so. you, sweetie. On our way to 50. All right, guys. Take care. See you in two weeks. Bye. 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 Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 